All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? How are you? Mark Marin here. You back at work? How's it going? I know, right? Right? You get relaxed. You get sort of into a different time sense. You get into a different groove. You kind of uh, get grounded in who you are and your identity in the world. And now you're back. You're back at work, making the adjustment, checking the mountain of emails. Everything all right? You're going you're gonna to be okay today? Just hang in there, you know. I guess this is life. We're all pretty excited, right? Y'all got pretty excited, and now we're, what, seven days into it? And uh, I don't know why we fool ourselves every year. Maybe, maybe it's just the ritual. Maybe we actually know in our hearts that... Uh, yeah, it might be a little better. It might be a signpost of some kind, but really just another day. And now we're a week into it and uh, we're back. We're back at it. Maybe you took that time to think about what would it be like if I didn't have to work? I think about that all the time. I am constantly working and I don't know how to really not work because I don't know about you, but I get about a, 10 days away and then it's just a... Uh, existential whirlpool of possibilities none of them good but uh welcome back welcome back to work folks let's have at it today steve coogan is on the show great guest great guy and a great movie he's in actually stan and ollie uh with uh it's steve playing stan laurel and john c Riley playing oliver hardy i loved it i fucking love that movie i will recommend that i recommend that movie I, I will, and I am recommending the movie Stan and Ollie. I'll talk about it before I bring him on. I certainly will talk about it with uh, with Steve, but I just thought it was a beautiful uh, little film, really. Well acted and just beautifully shot. And I don't know, man. Maybe I'm getting soft. I don't know if I'm... I just found it very touching. Maybe as a performer, as somebody in the business, marginally... I found uh, Stan and Ollie to be a, a tremendous movie. All right, so I had to watch a bunch of movies because of an interview I'm working on, and some of these movies were difficult movies. And 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 I am not, I'm not a closed-minded person. And it's interesting to to not be a closed-minded person, uh, you know, because when you're not closed-minded, when you're open-minded, you may have resistance to things. But you know, the thing is, is if you let things in. Because you're open-minded and you're curious and you're interested and you, you reserve judgment uh, until you process it, you, you know, you live a fuller uh, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual life, I believe. Because you take a lot of things in and you can sort of, you know, compare things and feel things, uh, different things and decide, you know, who you are in relation to them and what's, you know, what's good for you and what's not good for you. And how do you accept other people? And, you know, like, what are things that are difficult? And I just think that being open minded uh, is a stronger position. But it, it is interesting that that with that comes a certain amount of insecurity in the sense that uh, I, I guess the example is um like I was watching some early films by uh, Yorgos Lathamos. And I, yeah, I probably should talk about this when I give you the interview, but it's on my mind. And uh, it does lead to somewhere else. Well, I'm watching 
some of his films. I'm watching an early one, and I do not understand it. I don't know what the fuck is happening. I do not. I know that there is intent in it, that uh, that there was design to it, but it's not making sense to me. And it's provocative, but it's disturbing, and it's not uh, it's not forming a story. And I mean, I'm getting frustrated, and it's taking me days to get through a movie. And, uh, you know, I'm just but I'm open and I want to understand and I want to I want to know what what is trying to be communicated to me or what the effect is supposed to be. And I'm overthinking it, obviously. But the the thing I noticed about myself is that if I don't understand a movie or if something is too challenging creatively, like if it's an art film and I'm not getting it, I rarely, if ever, blame the movie. I always think like, what? The, why don't I fucking get this? What is the, what is wrong with me? And I. Sometimes it's just it's just supposed to go in. Sometimes art is just supposed to go in and roll around in your brain a little bit. May not make any sense whatsoever, but you never know what it's going to start in your brain. You never know what it's going to tumble or trigger or, or, or morph into or how it's going to pop back at you or how it's going to resonate or how it changes the way you see things. And you got to let that happen. It's not going to hurt you, especially if you don't get it and it's not expecting anything from you. But my point is, I, I always think that I'm the idiot. You know, you watch a movie, you're like, ah, fuck. What was that? I'm a fucking idiot. And then I realize, well, maybe that's what art's supposed to do. Maybe you're supposed to walk away going like, I'm a fucking moron. And then think about it for the next few years and on and off for the next decade after that. And one day you'll be like, oh, that's just like that thing in that movie. I didn't get the movie, but now like, ah, oh, see, now I'm looking at life a little differently, but it took 10 years. So keep an open mind. What fascinates me about closed-minded people, especially in reaction to what's going on politically, is most open-minded people can, can weigh things and process things based on their own experience you know, uh, and, and their own willingness to be empathetic and engage in a bigger world. Uh, so they have more foundation to, to understand who they are and who other people are and who they and, and, and what the world looks like and what is compassionate and what isn't. I believe that to be true. So ironically, you, you know, open-minded people are in a stronger position because it amazes me how easy it is with closed-minded people, how easily manipulated they are and how easily mind-fucked they are and how easily misled they are. And they think they're right. But they are the most vulnerable, mushed brain people that I, I can even conceive of. And, it, and they lock into it because, you know, belief offers them a portal into being connected to something bigger than themselves that they don't, you know, if it speaks to their anger, they're on board no matter how wrong it is. And that's what happens because the open minded thing, if you're an open minded person, you can weigh things and process things and somewhat to see the difference between, you know, right and wrong and moral and immoral on a human level. Whereas if you're closed minded, if somebody just pops that brain open and they dump a bunch of angry shit in there, you're fully on board with a whole fucking ideology. So closed minded people are much more vulnerable to being mind fucked than open minded people. And, uh, and I think in that balance, uh, you know, lies the future of fucking humanity. <laughs> the wall. The wall. What a ridiculous fucking... It's literally... Th this is it. This is like some sort of strange last stand of a particular type of ideology. May win, may not. The wall. Build the wall between you and your neighbors, between you 
and your higher mind. But whatever the case, this is the fight of the day. And I kind of hope, I did, you know, like I, I, I certainly don't want the, the Democrats to cave because God knows there's a lot of different things you can do with $5 billion that are more proactive. Uh, yeah, obviously, immigration has to be reckoned with, but that's not the point. The point is, I hope that this guy, I hope that King Baby gets his way and finds his money. I just see, I hope he just figures out a way that we, whether we agree with it or not, he gets it. And my hope for the wall is that it just gets half built. Maybe not even half, maybe a third built, because I think that all Trump wants as a legacy is something built because there's a real good chance that his legacy is just going to be infamy and contempt and shame. So I think that being the builder that he is and wanting to take care of his contracting buddies, you know, he wants to get something up that he can put his name on. That's the wall. That's the Trump wall. That motherfucker, he did it. He did it. I just hope that he, he gets started and then it just it just craps out. It doesn't get done. And then like years later, when you know, everybody is turned on him except for the 35% of the uh, closed-minded, mind-fucked minions, they'll never go away, but history does not uh, view tyrants uh, uh, in, in, a, in a positive way. I think generally speaking, except for a small contingent of people, but uh, I just hope that wall just uh, becomes this weird monument to failure and shame and humor. I just hope that it's a, in the future, the half wall, the famous half Trump wall. People travel miles to see just uh, this wall that just stops somewhere down at the bottom of Texas. And they're explaining to their kids, yeah, we had this madman uh, was president and he had this big idea. But he didn't didn't follow through with it. Well, what happened to him, mommy? Oh, he you know he 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 died in prison. Yeah, it's a hell of a story. You'll probably learn about it in school. You wouldn't have if he was president uh, and it was successful, but you will now. So this is just this was going to be a bigger wall. Yeah, it was supposed to go all the way across the whole bottom of the United States. And it's just this little piece. Yup. Here, hold my hand. Take a few steps. We're in Mexico now. All right, now take a few steps back. We're back in the United States. It's a big silly wall. That's funny. He's a funny man. I don't know if I'd say that. Hey, this just didn't get done. Now it's just a monument to a horrible dark time in our country. Come back from Mexico. Just step back over here. So Steve Coogan is a very funny man, a very bright man. And uh, I've been, you know, I, I've always liked his work. I was glad I had a chance to talk to him. But I do want to talk up this movie a little bit because I haven't been hearing much about it. I don't know. I imagine some people have seen it, but it's a lovely, uh, touching movie about the, the sort of towards the end of the careers of Laurel and Hardy. And, and my generation, uh, we, we, we've watched, probably got to see them on TV when we were younger. I remember in New Jersey, there was a station that ran Laurel and Hardy. My grandfather loved Laurel and Hardy, but we all certainly have a picture of Laurel and Hardy. Most of us have seen their bits before, but they're just sort of like these old timey guys who did a thing. But this movie, like, it's very hard to do a biopic in general because you have a point of reference. But we don't really have a point of reference other than those old black and white movies for Laurel and Hardy. And, and they, they did seem somewhat one-dimensional. And what Steve Coogan did and John C. Riley did was really create 
Stan Laurel and Elva Hardy from the inside. And these are, I guess I'm, I'm sympathetic to it and it's touching to me because this is a, a desperate time in their careers where they, they wound up broke because of bad production deals and they were sort of forced to tour as a live act in Europe and they were already past their prime and you know just the conversations and the reality of being on the road and having a partnership and it's a real it's a it's a beautiful movie about a friendship and it and it's also a love story in a way not a platonic love story but but the way that they just inhabited these men was really stunning and it was shot stunning and and it was just uh shot beautifully and it, I found it to be very touching and very moving, and they did, they both did Oscar-worthy performances. So I, I, I just highly recommend the film. And I'll talk to Steve about it and about other things because the film does open... Uh, well, it's, now, it's playing now in New York and California, but it opens uh, across the, the world and the country on Friday, January 18th. It's called Stan and Ollie, and this is me talking to Steve Coogan. <laughs> So wait, so that's uh, the cottage is your main house? No, it's just a house I had next to my main house, just outside Brighton. I know nothing about Brighton. Is that nice? <laughs> it's where all the mods and the rockers had fights on the beach in the 1960s. Have you ever seen footage of yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So it's a beach house. It was, no, it's kind of back from the beach. It's like, it's like a little cottage. You know, it's like we have lots of old, it's just yeah. an old building. Yeah. Loads of old buildings. Yeah. Have they, re- is it like renovated? Is it like, yeah, I mean, did they, is the area been it's like gentrified call, or? It's, no, Brighton was always, Brighton used to be the place where people would go for dirty weekends in the 19th century. Oh, okay. I don't, like, I have no sense of England and every time I have somebody in here from England, I, I seem to need a history of England. Yeah, well, it's been going. The thing about American history is it's like 250 years old. So so everybody knows it like back to front and it just goes over and over and over again. Yeah. But ours is a little longer and it gets muddier and muddier the further back you go. So everyone, (laughs) nobody knows all of it. They just know little bits here and there. Right, right. And you can always be, you can always be surprised. When somebody tells you something about a, a king or, or a piece of property yeah, or, you're like, or a house. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like here, everyone's like so steeped in their in American history. They know If they don't know a part of it, they get like a rap on the knuckles. Huh? Oh, I, I wish. I wish people were as uh, educated as you're, you're giving them credit for. It seems that uh, here the history gets erased daily. <laughs> yeah, or, or rewritten. Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. Yeah. So, when, so you grew up where, where, what part? I grew up in Manchester in the north. Oh yeah, so Indus- so that industrial. It was industrial. Yeah, like it's like a kind of. Uh, I think I compare Manchester to Chicago. Yeah, lots of Irish diaspora people. There. I'm half, you know, Irish. So that's, so like oh, so one of your folks is full Irish. My mom grew up in Ireland during the war. Uh, she was sent back there. She was actually born in England, but her mom and dad were like what I call bog Irish. So yeah. That's super poor Irish. Yeah. And everybody left Ireland then. There was no yeah. work. In the island. Turn that so it's facing. The, there the, you the, the, the country was dying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was only actually in the, the population since the famine in Ireland was going down yeah. until the 1980s. It's, there's only like 8 million up. people there now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The was, whole country. It was shrinking and then it went back up. Anyway, my, my mom's parents came over to England in the 1930s and she was born and then they sent her back during the war. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm on my dad's side further back is Irish. So I always, so even though I grew up in the North, yeah, there's a bunch of Irish Catholic diaspora, the kind of ghettoized area of Irish Catholics right next to the Jewish area. In Manchester? 
in North Manchester. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's, a, it's a little like Chicago. I compare it to Chicago. Yeah. Industrial town. It was kind of gritty, a little sort of dirty, but it's kind of gone beyond that now. It's like a post-industrial town, I guess. So, like, so there was a Jewish ghetto there too. Yeah, yeah. There's like a Jewish area. Oh, right, yeah. next, right next to the the Irish Catholic area. How'd you? How'd they get on? All right. Well, they didn't. Wait, they, they they lived. They lived side by side. We didn't hang out, but we didn't fight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, well, how like were they Orthodox Jews or just regular Jews? Pretty, pretty Orthodox. Oh, pretty, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty. No, no, regular Jews. I mean, they they would uh, assimilate more, but no, right. they, the Orthodox. Uh, well, they kind of say, is an enclave. So yeah, yeah, and there's a, and there's lots of you know Britain has a pretty you know a pretty uh, diverse history of uh, accommodating people of different you know yeah having, yeah. Having said that, you know the Irish did have their own you know there was a there used to be signs on doors um, that said uh, no blacks no dogs no irish oh boy that, yeah that was yeah. i mean that's they don't they don't do that anymore but they did sure, once upon yeah a time. i mean i talked to cleese john cleese you, you know and it, it sort of seemed like that the irish were sort of they took the brunt of the 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 humor and they were they were always sure. ostracized sure they were yeah and it was and it was okay i mean yeah growing up when i was growing up it was all right to tell irish jokes but 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 um, but this, I mean, funny enough, I because of the t- terrorism and the and the na- the nationalist movement and the, right now and no, I mean, I'm t- talking back in the day when the, oh. I, when the IRA was at the height. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was really quite. Uh, th- then it was like you were a social pariah. There were people in England pressing for the Irish. If you had to, you had to carry a carry an ID card, if just if you were Irish, because you might be a terrorist. That, that seems was, so crazy. Well, man. that was way back in the day. And, Why, and, but, it's all, but it's happening now with Muslims. I mean, the sure. exact same thing is happening. Sure, I mean, yeah. uh, but uh, now, of course, it's cool to be Irish. Every pub claims to be Irish. Every, I don't know, there are not enough Irish people in the world, I think, to justify the number of Irish pubs. But uh, <laughs> but it's so weird. It's not even a hundred years ago that history where they didn't want the yeah, Irish yeah. there. It's crazy. I know. It's uh, it's funny. I had, I mean, in Ireland, I have two sides of my family. Um. Uh, my dad's side of the family, yeah. he had a, he, his uh, brother was wealthy and, and they were targeted at one point by the IRA. The IRA used to kidnap rich people. Oh, yeah. Uh, raise money from the kidnap, from the ransom and buy arms. Right. And on the other side of Ireland, my mom's side of the family- is actually the IRA. Was, the, uh, was people who supported <laughs> the IRA who were, all, who were kidnapping the same people that were targeting my dad's brother. So, uh. And that was two sides of my family on, who had connections to- uh, 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 d- different sides of, of I thought of you almost, it almost feel, felt like a setup for you saying and that's how my parents met <laughs> <laughs> yeah do you go back there I mean like it would seem, all the time yeah yeah I mean I, yeah, pretty, pretty regularly sure. I mean I go to Ireland and I feel like some weird connection to it and I'm full on you know Ashkenazi Jew and I can't understand what my connection is but I go there and I'm like I want to live here it's so fucking so what beautiful. it is is when you grow up in England if you're from Ireland it gives you a kind of anti-establishment fervor uh, that means that you don't. I mean, for example, growing up, we I felt British, and I, yeah. I, I you know, I supported the England football team and stuff. Sure. But we were always like, you know, the don't forget the British screwed the Irish big time forever, forever, <laughs> and 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 so we never quite bought the whole flag waving. We the, right. the, the, the royal family, yeah. We were kind of slightly Bolshevik. We kind of like they should take them all into the cellar, and, <laughs> yeah. You know. But the only thing was, I think my my mom and dad said, but the, the Queen's okay. She right. earns, her, right. But but right. well, the rest of them, they they can get rid of them. You know. <laughs> yeah, the they Queen, were, the Queen's like nine hundred years old. <laughs> She's always been there. Yeah. Like, it, it's weird that I don't know if it's reverence or just sort of amazement. That that this queen has lasted so long. Well, longer than Victoria or any of those. I mean, yeah, you kind of it, it's kind of like your entire life. That that's been the queen. 
Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah, it's 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 her. Ma- yeah, no one says his. No, I don't think yeah. anyone's old enough to remember someone saying his Majesty. Right. It's, it's gonna not, it, her Majesty. Yeah, and his. it's going to happen eventually. Sure, sure. Does yeah. it, but I think I would think by that time no one would give a shit. Well, you know, it's like they keep. I mean, forever they were saying it's the end of the royal family, and then when Diana died, that there was. Yeah. There. But you know, people love. They just. I don't know. I think the British are suckers for. What really I find depressing about the the British is. A lot swathes of the working class want to be told what to do and just want to doff their caps yeah. and, and say and say I don't want to be in char- I don't want to empower myself I want that guy to be in charge and tell me what to do. That's dug into the culture. I the history. some some aspects of the culture. I mean, look, there's a lot of um um the whole union movement started in the north of England. I'm very proud of that. And yeah. There's a kind of a uh, a diffidence and a, and a kind of a uh, an opposition to uh, established yeah. institutions. Right. But um, but you know if that was the case, then we'd have a radical government. And the fact is that we we never do. We have kind of uh, very conservative with a small C government. Yeah. Because really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many people are banging the table. There's there's too many people who are just kind of roll over and say, yeah, okay, just you know. It's a weird thing though, because we don't like in this country. There's not a lot of conversation about class because they they just hide it. They subvert the the whole idea. That there's a lower, middle, or, or upper class, but in, in it's sort of established in in Britain because here it seems like people that don't have a lot they they're, they're either angry or they think it's only a matter of time before they get it. I all. know, I know. That's <laughs> this is the yeah. this is the big difference I think between the British and the Americans, and it's it's the fact that they're not class obsessed, and yeah. th- th- it's a double edged sword. There's good and bad in both, and I'll tell you what it is. In the UK, we don't measure success by the size of your bank balance, right? Uh, but that means we also have snobbery. It's like we we think even if you have a lot of money yeah. in Britain, people can look down their nose at you. Sure. If you didn't, if you're not bred, if, if you're not from the right, right. Or, if you didn't get it the, through the family, or yeah. you didn't get, if, it, or if you got bad taste, right? Then you you ought to go to hell, kind of thing. You know? <laughs> Whereas in the, the U.S., it doesn't matter if you yeah, made yeah. money. That's it. Yeah. You, you've arrived. You won. And, and that also means like um, if you made money and you're a horrible person. It doesn't matter. You can you be may- president. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it's fine. Um, so there's a lack of snobbery in that, but it also means that uh, uh, you can have assholes that do very well. Well, oh, the, the lack of snobbery is is <laughs> is essentially what's killing us culturally right now because of this fucking monster at office. I mean, I he is know. the he's one of those guys that was you never felt like he was accepted by the people that had the money, and he had money. So it's it, he is the, the exact example of why snobs. That's his whole platform. It's like the elites. I know. I know, I know, and they, I know. But I know. we don't have to talk. We, we oh, can't solve God. that problem. I so know. you grew up, I imagine, Catholic? Yeah. 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 I grew up, well, I did, and I did, I did a movie about that called Philomena about five years ago. Oh, I saw Catholic that. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, so I grew up Catholic, but, and I, I and that was my kind of uh, way of talking about that That was stuff. a touching movie. That was a, yeah, I, I forgot. Yeah, it's a good uh, movie. Yeah. I mean, uh, I have a kind of, I, I, I don't just... Uh, although there's a lot of stuff screwed at sexual, yeah. certainly about like repressed sexuality. Right. right. Hello. Yeah. Of course there is. Sure. We, know, we all know that now. Uh, I have but, a theory about that. I really but, think that 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 in neighborhoods, I think that some mothers who saw that their sons were were heading that way, pushed them into the priesthood to save them from that I think, life. I think you're right, and I think some of them thought, hey, you know, uh, and I think some guys themselves were like, I have these dark thoughts. Yeah. If I become a priest, they'll all go away. I think that's true, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, and I have to say, for all the kind of horror stories, Oof. there Centuries. are, there, uh, there, there are, there are, and this is what Philomena was about, there are some decent people, not yeah. normally the people in charge, the, foot, the, the people right at the base who are just trying to live a decent life and trying to be, trying to do 
good stuff quietly. Yeah. Service. And just service. Just yeah. people people of simple faith. I'm not religious. I'm an atheist. But we're, but we're, I respect those simple those people of simple faith who just do try to do the right thing well, without fanfare. Well, especially the Catholic Church and in, in, in a lot of those religious institutions in general, it gets to the point where they're the only ones doing it. Like where the government won't, you know, that they're sure. going to show up. Sure. I mean, the thing is someone, I remember an article saying, I read some article about, hey, you know those guys that help out at soup kitchens and stuff like that? Yeah. They're not like uh, liberal intellectuals. Yeah. They're people who actually are kind of helping people by giving them soup and that and those some people are some in some ways socially conservative some of them might be believe it or not anti-gay marriage right? sure so it, it's it, it and that's kind of you go well hang on a second do you like those people i'm saying that it's it's a lot of the people who might be not socially progressive quietly do decent stuff for for some you know for for, for, for people on a kind of classless uh, and, basis and, and don't ask, you know. Yeah. And the, but that's part of the benefit of 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 having a, a a sort of faith is that the idea of do of selflessness is rewarding. I mean, it, it it's it's part of being human. You know, you have to train yourself to do it. But I, there is a benefit to it for everybody. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's but it's kind of learned behavior. I, mean, uh, I think that's true. Not for me. I mean, I would like to. And it's, it's kind of weird. I would like to just go off and uh, have a good time. Yeah. Part of me would just like to. You know the thing John Lennon said, living is easy with eyes closed. Yeah. 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 Oh, I, I, mean, right. I mean, I just want to go off and just have a good time yeah. and, and, and have a hedonistic time. <laughs> yeah. But then it's like, you know, anything, it's, I, but I think when you, there is a kind of thing that say, if you raise, certainly if you raise a Catholic, you got some of the Catholic guilt. Yeah. Is, um, that you feel, I feel like I have to, at the end of the day, yeah. uh, you know, um, the, the crappy stuff. Yeah. Is like a line of cocaine, yeah. and uh, the the good stuff is like a nourishing meal. Right. The the line of cocaine might seem like a good idea at the time, yeah, <laughs> but but you don't get <laughs> nourishment from it ultimately. Right. And, unless you do the line of cocaine, then go to feed the guys at the soup kitchen. Yeah. Or if you're like uh, Pablo Escobar and you yeah. sell the cocaine and use the money to buy a nourishing meal for your family. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But when but did you like were you was the fear of God in you or was there a point in your life where you're like I'm done with this or like, yeah I mean I think I was super religious early on. I mean I I go to I go to uh, you know I mean I was forced to go to church you got a week, lot of so. siblings do you have the yeah full I got, yeah I've got I've got uh, four bro four, four brothers uh, two sisters they've all got kids I got 25 nephews and nieces wow we are a kind of but we're a mixed bag you know some people are, some people don't think it's all BS. Other people are, uh, are, I would say, I wouldn't say devout because that sounds like a weird thing. Yeah. They're just, they're just, they're, they're all liberal. Even the ones that are Catholic have, well, are, a, yeah, are, li sure. are liberal. And in, in actual fact, uh, and we all we have different opinions. We're a broad church. Even the family we get together and we love each other, but sometimes we drive each other nuts. Of course, and that's like a normal, yeah. marginally dysfunctional family setup, like the whole world. Yeah. But um, but I you know the but uh, there is a thing. I mean, I was raised a kind of socialistish. My 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 parents would say Jesus was a socialist. Right. He, you know, he hung out with the poor and he hung out with the 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 the, the criminals and the prostitutes. That, that's and, the progressive line on Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And then there's but then you get some people. What I found amazing, and this particularly in America, yeah, is the people who managed to conflate. Christianity with cash. Yeah. And I, I, it, it staggers me. They go, Jesus wanted us to make lots of money. I'm like, I don't remember reading that. 
I really don't. <laughs> it's an interpretation. <laughs> it's just an interpretation. He, uh, Joel Osteen, <laughs> the super church guy. Yeah. There's a lot of that guy. Yeah. It's, he had this empowerment. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not uh, Christianity as do, being, you know, doing Christian deeds. It's Christianity for means of personal empowerment. I know. It's, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's a it's racket, ama- dude. It's, it's a hustle. amazing it's a how hustle. you can. Well, it just shows you can. I just honestly think with this whole fake news thing, we're living in an era where, you know, you could. Uh, I could show. I'm holding a white mug here with yeah. some lovely tea you made for me. The, there are people on this that would say, "You, I know you think that mugs are so white, funny. but you know it's it's kind of black. Yeah, it's no, not there's white. A, there's no. a they, like I, I've been doing a bit on stage about that about false equivalences." Where like where like you know you have a, a concrete like I say like I'm sitting on a stool and the response for the would be, to that would be like yeah but there's a lot of things out there that aren't stools so you know can we really be sure yeah, exactly <laughs> I know it, it's I mean it's it's wait we have to have some parameters otherwise oh, no. we're going to talk ourselves into a soup oh, no it, like the, the like the the way that the truth is being dislodged and then people's ability to actually want. To pursue the truth, it's you know, crazy. And unfortunately, it's, it's, I think it's like the trouble is, mm-hmm. and you know, I hate to say this because like, <laughs> it's a very unegalitarian thing to say. Okay. It's when the, what was that thing that uh, Bukowski said about all the smart people are full of self doubt and all the, and all the, uh, uh, and all the stupid people are very confident. Yeah. Well, that's the era we're living in right yeah. now. What, what's the Yates one from Second Coming? Lack all conviction. The best lack all conviction and the worst are filled with passionate intensity. I know. That's right. The, yeah. the, that's the slightly clever. I was trying to make it more accessible in my version. but <laughs> No, but you, know. no, you <laughs> broke it down to smart and stupid. <laughs> he left it a little more vague. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean hell. Uh, but when did it? When did it drop out for you? When did you realize, like, hey, maybe this Jesus isn't a flying man? Um, oh, that stuff went pretty early on. I think. Oh, that yeah. stuff, I mean, really? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. kind of crazy. Um, so I, you never you know, believed in hell? Well, I did for a while, and then Oof. I was like, and then I met all the liberal. But then I, I, w- I was educated by these brothers that are very liberal, and they were saying, "Oh, it's okay. Don't worry. Everything's a metaphor." Right? Oh yeah, good. And you go, Thank oh, okay, God. okay, yeah. okay. That's good. That makes it a little more tangible. And then yeah. you go, "Hang on a second. I don't even buy the metaphor thing. I just think it's just, it's just a load of stuff." <laughs> and and you know, hey, there's some really good people, and they don't believe in any of that stuff, and they're really decent. So yeah. why do I need that stuff? Yeah, it's you know. The people who are great, really good people. Some of my family uh, are people uh, I've got, you know, I love and I have huge respect for who who are, are, are who, you know, adhere to that religion. Yeah, and, yeah sure. And there are lots of good people who do, and um, and then there are some people who who, who are, don't adhere to any of it, and are, are amazing, wonderful it's, contributors to humanity. You know? Yeah, it seems like a lot of times people do it out of uh, uh, just the the community element, and and it take I think it takes a bit off their plate as parents and stuff. Of, of course, and I tell you what, and also the, the trouble is, we, we, you know, there's all these people. What's that Alexander Pope thing? Uh, a little, uh, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Drink deeply or not at all. Yeah, we've got a lot of people who have had a little bit of a sip and yeah, think yeah. that that Einstein. Oh no, that I is mean, a big problem. I know it's it weird, is. Man. It's people. It's like confident. There's a lot of these confident people who are saying, "I know all this stuff," because someone's. I don't know. It's it's it makes me think. You know what? In the old days, like 500 years ago, yeah. they didn't let ordinary people read the Bible. Right. And I think that's a terrible thing that oh, my liberal instincts say yeah. that. But, but when I look around now, I'm think, I feel like maybe they had a point. So if they read it, they'll get it all wrong. Well, yeah, and that's the thing is that that kind of stuff, like I believe that, that if once you buy the Bible, right, so once you, you, you sort of believe it, 
then your brain is open to any other kind of bullshit that makes sense. Well, the sense. problem is, the thing is, this is what I think about, let's may as well just yeah. touch on Trump without getting completely uh, consumed by him, is that I think the people who, his base, don't, it, there's no point uh, uh, arguing with them with, with intellectual oh, no, dis- no. discourse because it's like talking to someone uh, who's religious and saying, I'm sorry, uh, um, uh, God doesn't exist because, right. Um, right. and uh, yeah. or, or talking to creationists or talking to people who have this. Right. Um, right. It's saying these are the facts and here's the evidence and it's like that, that doesn't mean anything. I, I'm, 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 I believe. They believe. And people that's just right. believe. And, and, the thing and it is, doesn't matter what you say. They're not even talking about evolution or, or, or Jesus. They're talking about, you know, Hillary Clinton running a pedophile ring out of a pizza parlor you know yeah it, and then mm-hmm, and then when mm-hmm. you do present them with truth they'll say that's a good theory i know so i know the Look, under the problem is it's like well you know I, one of my measure one of my barometers for mm-hmm. whether i uh i i when the alarm bells go off my head if yeah. i've just met someone right. new, <laughs> yeah uh is if someone mentions a conspiracy theory to that's me, it that's i'm it. like i'm done i'm out i'm, I'm done it's just uh, like religion because you can't prove it no. and, and it all um, it, it has and you know the th- well, the thing about the thing about conspiracy theories is you say you know you know the truth uh, if, if the truth is okay, there's all these possible theories. Yeah. What if the most likely one was the most boring yeah, one? Yeah, and, and, and it is. generally it is the yeah. most likely explanation for something is the most boring one. Yeah. That means you can't stay up late over a drink, pouring yeah. over the infinite details of your infinite endless yeah, conspiracy. It's, it's crazy. And the truth is normally boring. Yeah, and it's it, it, it's I think conspiracy theories to support the point with, that we've sort of dragged through the conversation is that it makes stupid people feel smart. Oh, it does. It totally does. It's like, oh, you, and they think that because you don't believe in the conspiracy theories, you drunk the Kool-Aid and they're oh, like yeah, one yeah, step yeah. ahead. Yeah, that yeah. drives me nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't, you, can't, oh. you can't engage with that oh. shit. So when did you start, like, uh, when did the, the comedy start happening? Well, I just used to watch TV. I wasn't, I was sort of, I was, I just didn't work hard in school and, I, I did impersonations of teachers at in school, school. And, and that that got me that that kind of got me off the hook because I, I would have been given a lot of uh, <laughs> crap but for the fact that I could do impersonations so teachers would say hey Coogan come to the front of the class and do impersonations of all the other teachers and I'd go ah, I don't want to do that and then the other t- and they'd say okay well everyone can open their books and we can do some work <laughs> right and then everyone would say do it Coogan and I'd right. go okay and I'd go to the front and I'd do impersonations of the teachers I'd take assemblies as teachers, they'd say, "Do you can do the assembly this morning?" And uh, really, yeah, and I'd be like what, fourteen, what you- and I'd be going up to like sixteen, seventeen-year-old kids, straightening their ties and telling them to smarten up. And I was like thirteen or something like that because I was and, impersonating the teacher. Yeah, and, um, and they would laugh, and, and they'd they, laugh, and they'd yeah. take it, and and, and uh, it it, it bought, got me out of a lot of, tr- lot of trouble. And, and, and it also gets you access with other kids, right? You know, it's a way of social. I'm not tough. I wasn't. I can. I wasn't tough. I wasn't a hard nut, and uh, I wasn't super smart. But I had my comedy. But I wasn't the class clown. I like. I, I was a little bit of a snob. I had my group of friends, and we liked our comedy, and we didn't like. And I had an older brother who was in a rock band. They had some success. And, oh yeah. Yeah, they were called the Mock Turtles. And they had this. This. Uh, they had this. How old are you? Thing. I'm 53. I'm 55. Yeah, uh, they had they had they had a uh, uh, I had I had the older brother. My older brother was cool. So I, oh, when thank I, so, God. So I know, music, exact music yeah. and culture. I mean, you know, there's a, a headline in the Onion once. It said parents' record collection deemed hilarious. <laughs> now that is what <laughs> I my parents had. They had, as my da- brother pointed out, my parents had had snide fake versions of authentic acts so yeah. we had like a, an act in our country called Mary Hopkins who uh-huh. was kind of like a lightweight Joni Mitchell sure and then we had uh, the Seekers that were like a, a, a lightweight Peter Paul and Mary right. and everything was like the the kind of 
fake lowbrow, low grade. Well, they just were version. riding the coattails, and they, exactly. they this is a, this and, is the angle. And that was the stuff my parents bought. No, they like that. <laughs> yeah, stuff. that's the, the, the easy listening version. The, yeah, all that version. Yeah, and um, so, so how, old, how much he, older is your brother? Uh, five years older. Yeah, yeah. So he would tell me. This is cool. These are the cool bands. I mean, and these. This is the cool stuff on TV, not the main channel. This stuff, and the the. You know, I remember he he'd actually he'd say, "Go out and buy this record." There's a single coming out next week. It's called Hong Kong Garden by Susie and the Banshees. Go and buy it because people are going to be talking about it. And I go, "Okay, yeah." And that's how I learned about stuff that was off the grid, slightly left field. And it's weird because I'm the same age as you, but in Britain there was still a big singles market. Like there was like you sure. could go buy 45s. Yeah, and yeah, the, yeah. And there were tons of them. I remember being there at that time. Well, that's briefly that's, after high school. Right, right. You'd well, go to record stores. There's just hundreds yeah, of singles. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's a music and kind of uh, 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 that was a way of escaping from uh, and making smart choices. I mean, I mean, I was a little. I didn't. Quite, I was figuring it out. But I was a little up my own ass. I remember like refusing to go and see Greece, age thirteen, because I told my friends it was too commercial. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and that's a, that's the older brother. That's that's right. Benefit. My older brother told me this word Sell commercial. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not. I, I you know it's it's so funny. Was his band what? a punk band? They were kind of punk new wave. It was all. I I remember, I remember my dad screaming at my my brother because he had orange hair for yeah, a while and yeah. an earring, saying, "What's wrong with you? You look like a girl." <laughs> you know, like like society was breaking down as yeah. far as it was an in the home because yeah. his eighteen year old son was looking androgynous. So that was like so that <laughs> that period was it was in in the in the movie the twenty four hour par, uh, party people. Oh yeah, yeah. But that would that have been the time? But Susan yeah, yeah. Well, it was that early in the time because that earlier, right? Well, that I, first I, wave. Uh, it kind of spanned two periods. Twenty-four hour party people, like the end of the nineteen eighties, uh, the, the sorry, end of the nineteen seventies, the right. arrival of Joy Division, uh, and 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 the post-punk and, new and wave. Susie and the Banshees. Susie and the Banshees right. were part of that period. They were like new new wave post-punk, yeah, right. like after 77, 78, 79, yeah. A lot of these these bands that were kind of a refined punk, wasn't it? New wave, right, and then, right. And then uh, and then in the set in the eighties, there was a, it became electronic and sort of yeah, art. Yeah. It was like arts art house kind of cool androgynous bands and then then there was a fallow period and then the sort of there was this period of the happy mondays and stone roses where guitar bands suddenly came back came back and uh, and the, the movie covers all that period but i i grew up in manchester so i the guy i play in the movie tony wilson who who discovered those bands was yeah. also a tv presenter i i i um i knew him and i i presented a tv show with him before i played him in a movie uh, oh really yeah I, I, like a sort of a yeah, like so a, he was a, impo- like he was a local celebrity. He was a local TV presenter, yeah. and his other job was he he was on the so people knew him. In fact, it was kind of like Tony. Tony was a little unwanted because the people who were really cool. Yeah, thought he was a bit of a sure a, a square. Like, it's like Murray the K or whatever from the, the whoever that guy was from, the, uh, from um, the, the uh, in the old days. Like these DJs, they're like uh, DJs. Yeah. Yeah. They're not cool, but they're opening the door. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, So, so they, they wanted to be. It was like the oldest guy at the party. Yeah, they? yeah. Um, but also, he was. Uh, but if you were watching the t- t- if you saw him as a TV presenter. He seemed like a, a youthful, edgy TV presenter because his hair was a little long and he sometimes didn't wear a tie. Right. Know. But like they, they, when in the 70s, were, so you, because of the older brother, you were, you were, because like in the States, we didn't get that shit till years later. No. You know, but you were there. So, you, and you had a brother that was on top of it. So you, you got yeah. to experience the Sex Pistols in real time and all those bands in yeah, real yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, uh, I remember I bought. Uh, I went halves with my buddy on Nevermind the Bollocks Here's the Sex Pistols and we hid it in a Perry Como sleeve because it had the word bollocks on which in England was my father would have considered that 
a rude word uh-huh. and he was pretty traditional yeah. and, and so I couldn't have that album cover around so you put so it in one of their in albums a peri, in, in a, a Perry Como <laughs> and I'd, 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 my buddy would come borrow it and he would take it to his house in a, in a Perry Como sleeve <laughs> And it, was a, it was a good record. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when now what were some of the the see cuz I don't know, I'm not well versed in British comedy other than talking to people about well, it. So you know, Mon- were, well, a lot of sitcoms I used to watch and I used to Monty Python. Monty sure. Python was a cool edgy thing, but a lot of comedy in those days before VCRs, it was on vinyl. Right. So you'd listen to comedy, yeah. on v- even older comedy, like some American comedy. A lot of American comedy was ahead um, of British comedy, like yeah. in the fit, like of course, Bob yeah. Newhart and and Mel Brooks and stuff like that. And that stuff was on vinyl. Your parents have that, yeah, they had that. So that was a kind of cool bit of the. When my dad had that, and he had like some Peter Sellers stuff. He was in a thing called the Goons, but Peter. Oh Sellers, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was in England. That was yeah. That was the the Goons were like a pre Monty Python. Yeah, right. Uh, and but so you were growing up with that. So but I, there yeah. wasn't a huge stand up scene in Britain yet. No, there was not a huge. It was kind of very old. Old, uh, regressive Billy Connolly was this uh, yeah, I know Billy yeah, I've interviewed okay. him yeah okay so he was part of a strain of folk com- almost like com- uh, comic storytellers like, have- storytellers they used to come on with a guitar yeah they'd sing a song and in between the songs they talk and s- yeah. and the talk got bigger and bigger and the songs got less and less until eventually they put the guitar down and just talked yeah and that's that's what Billy Connolly came out of and he was Billy Connolly was kind of someone you thought hey you don't have to tell cheesy gags you can you can reel people in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Storytelling. Yeah. And that that kind of comedy. And uh, so he, the figures like him were like, they weren't uh, these Oxbridge intellectuals and neither was he like some blue collar Joe. Right. He was right in the sweet spot between them. That's what Billy Connolly was because he, he managed to be smart and yet from a kind of working background. And, and, and I think that his style kind of defined a lot of what was going on in the UK and, and in Ireland because like I went to Edinburgh you know, like 2006. Mm-hmm. And it seems like still that the format for even young comics is like, they're going to put together an hour, they're going to title it, and it's going to be long form. It's not going to be like necessarily punchline efficient. Tommy, sure. But Tommy Tiernan's directly yeah, yeah. Uh, like Tommy, that. Tommy Tiernan, yeah, his, uh, he inherited that kind of style. That's I mean, right. I saw Tommy Tiernan, uh, Irish comedian, uh, 20 years ago, and I was already like um, getting some traction on TV in the UK yeah. doing my thing. And I saw Tommy Tin and was blown away by uh, the sim- the purest simplicity of what he did. And then you saw yeah. I saw you did something with that guy. What's his name? Johnny Vegas? Is that? Yeah, I, I produced uh, my company produced this TV series he did. Because I remember him when he was a stand up from mm-hmm. yeah. Because but he's yeah, yeah. new generation. He's- yeah, yeah. He came way after me. I was like, I mean, I I was. Uh, there was kind of a there was a there was like there was like after the before the pythons there was like uh this well there was the goons then there yeah. was beyond the fringe so it was like peter sellers and yeah. you'd know then there was dudley moore and peter yeah. cook would be on the fringe and after that there was the rowan atkinson and the uh the those guys he's an interesting uh, talent isn't he yeah very quiet quite sort of uh, enigmatic uh, yeah guy. yeah old, uh, almost old school like uh clowning in yeah, a way yeah. almost so but wait yeah. did you study like wait, when you went, went to did you study theater and shit i just went to theater and did uh, acting the whole thing the stanislavski thing but I, you did i just it brought it brought <laughs> the pants off me i was thinking why am i doing yoga I, you know, what am I doing? Um, why am I? None pretend- of it sunk in because you have become a better actor. Oh, oh. I think. Well, what I did was I just I, I was doing stuff outside. I was moonlighting, doing, you know, doing voiceover ads. I got more traction from doing ads for local radio stations than I ever did doing any kind of Shakespeare or, or, or Chekhov in drama school. But you did do that stuff. I did that stuff, yeah. But I was like, and then I started getting. Were I, you good at it? 
Uh, not really. No. I mean, no, I was, I was. Because why you wanted to get the well, laugh? I was, I just wanted to, I wanted, the thing is, I knew you were supposed to be trying to, I mean, I, I was quite lowbrow. I just yeah. wanted everything right now, and I sure. didn't want to have to tread the boards for, yeah. for no money. And yeah, so, right. uh, and I got some traction. I got onto a TV show. Oh, doing comedy. I was 22 years old, and I was on this TV talent show in London, but it, it was pretty cheesy, and I knew it was cheesy, but I thought, Hell, it's a gig. Yeah, and it. I got my foot in the door. Maybe I can get my foot in the door. Then I can get smart. And What'd then you do? I did like impersonations. I did impersonations of, of uh, oh, I'm trying to think people you'd know. So I do like you know Michael Caine. I can do like you know I could do I could do Michael Caine, but, but quite well. I'm, I'm, I know how to do those voices. I know how to speak. It's got that sort of crusty voice like that. I know I knew how to do people like him. Sean Connery too, right? Because like you do, do Sean. A lot of people, a lot of people claim to be. Well, a lot of people claim to do Sean Connery because they go. You show up at a party and everyone goes, "I'm Sean Connery," and they yeah. do that, but they don't get the depth. And that's uh, part of the secret is getting the depth. And if you can't get the depth, there's no point doing it at all. So you do that. Yeah. But I learned to do Roger Mort. This sort of accent like this and uh, like combine people like that and uh, and I do that with people like. Uh, uh, I do uh, Sylvester Stallone doing Shakespearean soliloquies. Oh, know. yeah, okay. The that to be there is a question. <laughs> well, there's noble in the mind, so the slings and arrows, right, righteous fortune, or to take a sidewinder helicopter with. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Um, I do stuff like that, and I just I was listen. I was twenty two, twenty three. I just uh, throw all this this stuff. But in. you had a framework like that classic sort of uh, impressionist framework where you, yeah. you take the, the yeah. guy and you put him in a situation. Yeah, so you, you'd switch it up. So I'd have like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as a social worker, right. uh, you know, and I'd have, <laughs> yeah. I do Martin Sheen. I do weird. I do, Martin Ma- Sheen. That's Martin tricky. Sheen. He has. Uh, <laughs> I normally do. I used to shove some food to the top of my mouth. I got broken biscuits. <laughs> But uh, he speaks like that about the president of the United States. When he gets angry, he gets real hoarse. His voice gets kind of squeaky like that. It's sure like that. Yep, Martin Sheen. That's, uh, <laughs> That's yeah. great. So, yeah. You could just drop into that <laughs> shit. Yeah. I, just, I, mean, the thing is, I could just do that stuff. And, and tell you what, what, what was good about it was. Because that's it, like esoteric. A Martin Sheen impression is it's, mm. it's like, it's like, it's unique. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's the most, but you just kind of go, hey, I wonder if I can do that guy. I wonder if I can do him. It was, uh, but uh, uh, what what's good about it is that if you're trying to get on in this business, yeah. you know, every you, I mean, everyone is you're you're starting out in the business. You're trying to grab hold of someone's coat, saying, "Look at me, give me a break." Yeah. Right? When you do a funny voice like that, you might not show that you got profound, profound, some 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 sort of profound insights in it. Right. But very quickly, people can go, "That's pretty impressive." Yeah, in yeah. about thirty seconds, you right. can impress oh, sure. someone. Yeah. And they, they might not think, it, but they go, "Okay, well, he can do that." Yeah. Right, that's right. something we can and work so, with it. We can work with so, it. So then yeah. you've got their attention. Then you can say, uh, and, "And hey, do you want to see my other stuff?" Yeah, right. <laughs> that's not quite so funny, <laughs> but is um, you know the rest of the, the show. Re- yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was the first ten minutes, and yeah. then I'm going to talk about yeah. this. Yeah. Well, so, so what? How did you? What? And then oh, well, I just you started working doing stage work primarily. I did. I started doing stuff like that, doing clubs and nightclubs I mean, in Manchester before this, like oh, what they call the alternative uh, comedy circuit. When when comedy that had already been established, good stage craft comedy, stand up comedy, had been well established in the U.S. and it was kind of reborn in the U.K. in the 1980s. And uh, but in Manchester, when I was, there was there was no room for it. Was just kind of working uh, class, working class stuff yeah. that was kind of gag based and just yeah. lazy and crummy. 
I had to support indie bands yeah. to do my comedy. I had to show up a club with some band on stage. Yeah. And I'd, they'd say, okay, before the band, this guy wants to do some funny voices. That's tough, man. Boo, yeah. get off. And I'd go on. I'd, I'd, I'd just ram a few down their throat. And, and it, normally, within a 30 seconds, some people go, wait, wait, wait a second. He's good. Yeah, yeah, right. And then I'd have him, and I'd do like 15 minutes of that's weird how, that, stuff. That's how you started. Yeah, and that's how I started. It's, so it's a baptism of fire. So there was no kind of PC kind of... And I go down to London and then suddenly there were these kind of vegan venues where people would go on and be given a very easy time by the audience because they weren't aggressive. Surprise, right. surprise. Well, that's what you get if you... Like, I, I started in New England doing like pubs and shit like that and you get this edge to you yeah. where, where you're like... Well, there's, I, there was a show... There was, a, there was one venue in London called the Tunnel Club yeah. and that was a baptism. If you could survive that, you had respect and you'd go on stage and they would throw glasses at you. I mean, they, I think they'd give them plastic ones eventually yeah. and I got a chair thrown at me. I mean, within 30 seconds... I got a chair thrown at me, and, so, and I started doing like really uh, stupid, like kids' TV show voices. Yeah. But then screaming, but doing of them. Do, I just yeah. did kids' cartoon characters saying obscene things. Oh, and that sexual got him? things. Yeah, yeah. That was pretty. How can I put it? Accessible. Yeah. To even dumb people, <laughs> and they would go, "Wait, huh, this is funny." Yeah. And then I managed to segue into stuff that was a little smarter. Yeah. And I, and I did like twenty minutes, and the, and and I came on stage, and they were chanting more, more. They said, "Do you want to go back and do an encore?" Isn't I said, "No, funny? fuck them." Yeah, right. I beat them. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. I'm never coming back. Why risk it? Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. out of yeah. here. Goodbye. Don't don't ever take that <laughs> second chance. No, you know no, no. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's how you got the that's how so you got, got the edge. And I, yeah, and I and I and I just I ended up writing. Comedy. Who who was around when you were when you did you do the uh, club circuit there? You did the comedy store and stuff. I did the comedy store and all that for a while. Yeah, uh, and there was a lot of people like Eddie Izzard. Oh yeah, sure. contemporaries. Eddie was you know he was he was before I mean, the dress. Yeah, before the yeah. dress. And I remember Eddie starting out. I mean, I remember thinking, God, he's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, the, I remember thinking, I honestly, th I was thinking, I, mean, I was thinking at one point going up to saying, you're a really nice guy, but you really should quit comedy because <laughs> it's really not your thing. And uh, he is a testament to tenacious hard work oh people can get funny i as a yeah. stand as a stand-up you know you start with guys you're like this is never going to turn for this guy but yeah. but some dudes like i i think you're you know, because of the the impressions and like some guys are going to go after the f comedy they're going to go after the funny no matter what uh -huh. but then there are those dudes that are just they can't change their their speed no, no. and you just look at them and, and when they're starting out going like oh it's going to be a slog you're yeah. not going to make it but then mm -hmm. all of a sudden it clicks there this innate faith or this inability to do it differently mm -hmm. eventually if they're persistent and it sticks. Yeah, well, it's like that, you know, marching to a different drum. Yeah, exactly. You look at the crowd, you're thinking, how long can I not do what everyone else is doing? And then eventually you throw a towel and think, I'm going to have to join the crowd and yeah. do what they do because it right. kind of works. Uh, Some people don't have that. They can't switch. Yeah, it's, but I'm thinking, is, is, is when I was doing comedy, I was thinking, well, I, I was doing this, this impersonations and stuff. And I was like, oh, this is so boring. Uh, I, I, I was, I, I didn't, other people like what I did, but I didn't like what I did. Yeah. And I start, so I figured out, oh, I'll just, I'll just, um, I'll, try, I'll do some, I did, I know a bit of acting, so I'll do stand-up comedy characters rather than just doing stand-up. I'll do a character in front of the microphone and I started doing that and I got some traction with that. A character of your own creation. I did about a bunch of different characters. You know, I did a woman and her brother and- So it's like a one-man show thing? Yeah. You do it at Edinburgh? I did it at Edinburgh, and I won the Fringe Award at Edinburgh when I did it in like 26 years ago. Uh, and that kind of, I'd, I'd already done this cheesy TV shows, but when I won that, that gave me some credibility. It was like, oh, he's not just some cheesy, like, uh, flash in the pan guy. Yeah. He can do stuff that's smart and funny. And then also not an impression. And there was but no, I didn't I, do any impressions in that show. 
to uh, deliberately to say to see if I could go. Hey, uh, and the weird thing was because I done TV, people were like, oh, he's the other funny voice guy. Yeah, I was like, no, I can do other stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, everyone can do other stuff. Whatever, right? So, so I did the show in Edinburgh, and and where I did all these characters, and and it it it, it was good. Is it, that it where is, is that where Alan Partridge came from? That uh, show just before that, I started doing him on radio with a guy called Patrick Marber, who became yeah. a screenplay writer, and he wrote a movie called Closer and notes on a scandal and he's, he's now a successful screenwriter but he was at the time trying comedy which he wasn't great at so you did a, a sort of a team thing team thing and I joined him and a guy called Armando Iannucci who'd done some movies like The Death of Stalin and some uh, oh I just uh, saw The Death of Stalin yeah. he did that other one the In the Loop In the Loop yeah didn't he have something to do with Veep too yeah he, he wrote he, he, he wrote created, created Veep. Veep so that Armando was the guy I, I met and started doing radio comedy with, and that's really? where Alan Partridge came from working with from him. From radio, isn't it? Yeah. But radio's great, isn't it? it? Well, Radio 4, but public, what you have, like public, the BBC radio. Yeah, right. They The good thing about BBC was, and that one of the great things about the BBC is because it was publicly funded through a, through a levy, it's not, no one has it. It's like you, you, if you, if you, this is so weird about it. It sounds almost like communist. Like if you own a TV, you have to pay the license fee. And that, and, and you have no choice over what the bit back in the day, someone who worked at the BBC would go, I like that guy. I'm going to give him a TV series. And, and you're on. There's no market research. There's no like audience testing or seeing how this is measured. It would just be one guy at the seat of his pants go, I like that guy. That's what happened with Python. That's right. Yeah. It? And, and there's a, you know, the, the, uh, sometimes people will make mistakes, but really odd, misshapen, genius stuff finds its way finds through. its way through yeah. because bec- in a way that wouldn't if you just relied on 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 market research or the development process or sort of like yeah. you know, a room full of executives going well, I don't know well yeah there's the old thing there's the old thing that a camel is is a, is a horse designed by a committee you know? <laughs> you're right right, uh, right. Uh, uh, but that, just because it was state run you 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 didn't have to deal with that process no no, no they just go okay give this guy a, you know this guy seems to know what he's doing yeah and they kind of didn't really interfere <laughs> much and in fact they, 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 this they, guy seems to know what he's doing well, give it a try if it yeah, doesn't yeah, work it doesn't work yeah yeah and it's like and it's not my money it's like the government's yeah money yeah, fuck so, it. so uh, yeah so so th- that meant you could do stuff that was just different is that why some things only like because i've noticed it and, and i respect it a great deal but i don't think it's necessarily intentional that that some of the greatest british sitcoms are only like three seasons or two seasons yeah or four yeah yeah, seasons. yeah yeah well 40 towers is like there was two seasons of that i mean the office y- too was only what was three, that like three yeah, three or th- it was three seasons and a sp- couple of specials that's right. That's so, right. So um, the radio plays. So it, that was the f- the first time you started writing scripted bits. Yeah, and we didn't have team writers like you do in the right. states. So people get burnt out more quickly. And there's like things are written by like two people. Maybe right. most things are written by two people, and they 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 go, I'm done. I'm done. I just did like. I, whereas I did ninety here, things. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I've done everything. And yeah. So they get, but whereas I, here you have it's more of a. Okay. Yeah, well, the Americans have always been good at getting an idea and going, how can we make this generate as much capital as possible That's for us? That's right. Whereas the Brits have never been great at that. Yeah. They have a good idea. In fact, a lot of good ideas we have, and then the Americans go, okay, we can now, now we can mass produce this. Yeah, we'll take Whereas, it. We'll buy yeah, it from we'll, them. And we'll, yeah. make it, and we'll make it so everyone can have it. Right. Whereas, I mean, like, I, it, it, yeah, but that, that's, I don't know. Who do they pay for those things? I mean, how does that work? Have you sold some, uh, a TV, a TV uh, well, show? Well, that- uh, uh, you, you know, we, we try to. I have a production company. We make some shows over that. We, we, we have a show that was called Camping that Lena Dunham is doing an American version That was of. yours? Yeah. So that, that was sold the regular way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you're saying that when you do the BBC thing, you're like you're going to get experience writing, acting, producing. Yeah. We, 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 would go, we would go along and we record the show for the BBC. We'd go have lunch. Yeah. And we'd be having lunch and we'd go, 
we have an idea at lunch. Yeah. And then that afternoon we'd go and record it and it would be broadcast at the end of the week. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a fast turnaround of stuff. And so that, and, and then, uh, but I, I was sort of saying, well, I want to write and I want to, I want to do more serious stuff yeah. as well. And, and, and but, so how did Alan Part? how many versions of the Alan Partridge show did you do? We did like one, two, three TV series in the UK. We did one talk show and then we did two sitcom, two, two sitcoms. Then we went and did some stuff on radio and stuff for Sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sky. That's uh, uh, Murdoch's thing? It is, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we did two series for that. And then we're doing, now we're back on the BBC. Really? So we're back on the, we just finished a TV series that starts next uh, February. On another BBC. Alan Partridge it's series. It's another Alan Partridge series, but this one is like a magazine type show. So it's like a, like a, like to, like a sort of a, a morning uh-huh. thing with a female and male co presenter. And, you, and you've aged him? He's a little well. He's old, he's as old as he would be. He's always been about ten years older than me. Yeah, which has worked out pretty well. Yeah. Um. But as I'm getting older, I'm making I'm catching up with him, and slowing his age down. <laughs> so I think he's about seven years older than me now. But um, but yeah, we've got like a new. It's a great. I'm really pl- excited about the show. It's uh, it's uh, you know, it's thing where Alan tackles uh serious topics uh, uh-huh. like the whole Me Too thing. Uh-huh. There's a whole episode about that because <laughs> yeah. we were saying. It's that that's such a difficult thing to talk about for anyone to right. say anything about. But if you're doing a character, right. it yeah. weirdly gives you this license to yeah. you can get things wrong in a big way, and it's fine because it's, a, right. it's him doing yeah. it. And also, you're not saying you're not you're not sanctioning or agreeing with what he's saying. You're saying this guy makes it gets things wrong, so you have license to do. It. And, 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 and this is the crucial thing because you've got a comic character, he can say stuff that you go. That is so off message, but sometimes he can say stuff that's true that you don't, that I can't say. The right, Emperor's exactly, New Clothes. Exactly. So the fool right. can point something out. The fool can point something out that everyone secretly knows to be true. It's a good point because like my, when you're telling me this, my first re- reaction is that we, there's no dialogue around that stuff. So, like you know, because yeah. you know, men in general yeah, are sort of like, I'm not gonna, of course. But so, so when you can just do a character that is already an asshole and insensitive, you got you can talk, you, about, you can talk about, and you can, and and you can kind of have your cake and eat it because you can say, I and mean, what we do is we have him trying to jump on the bandwagon and say, you know, hey, you know, I mean, he says, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I've, uh, I, I want to apologize. I've made mistakes. I've stood on the side of the sidewalk and tried to and slow hand clapped while I watch a woman try to parallel park. You know, and uh, I feel bad about that. And uh, now, if it, if I saw a woman doing it now, I would uh, I would <laughs> shout instructions. Um, yeah, right. So, yeah. like, see now, yeah, like, so. I'm, I'm even I'm afraid to laugh on the <laughs> yeah, mic. Yeah. That, that's it's, how terrified. Yeah, I, I know. Are. Yeah, but the yeah. point but the point is, it's him, and we have like we have actors. You know, we have feminists on the show, putting that point of view, and we have actors playing. Both sides, and so I have a in, female in, in an exaggerated way, you're actually servicing the side of the dialogue that does not is not enabled. Yes, exactly, and 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 doing it in a kind of a it's weird because it's a safe environment. You're not saying that he's right, right? And you're not saying right. he's wrong, or you endorse it, and and sometimes and and it enables you to 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 uh, to sometimes um, uh, to, to to how can you sprinkle a little humanity right. on uh, arguments that become very attritious. Yeah. 
Right. That's that's what it does. And uh, even now, you see, I'm choosing my words very goddamn carefully. <laughs> but I am, you know, you, which because you kind of have to. We got and uh, it is you know, uh, like there's nothing unreasonable, you know, about the intent uh, of of what's happening, right? No, and so, you know what? I'll say this about the when when you do when you well, when you're writing comedy, I feel like I'm very ethical when I write comedy. What yeah. I mean is, I don't mean that I I, I I'm, a, I'm I'm sanctimonious about yeah. it, but but. What you do when you write write comedy is you you feel okay. Um, I I don't like I don't like to use comedy to attack people who don't have any power. Right. Some people some people do that, and I yeah. don't like it. It's like hey, punch, let's, punch let's, up, let's, don't punch yeah, down. Yeah, punch up, of course. And a lot of people don't get that, but I, to me, it's like you, you have to do that. There's kind of ethical responsibility. And are you laughing at? A prejudice, or you, or, or is the prejudice why you're laughing? You know, and and yeah. now I don't sit there marking myself, but intuitively that's what I want to do. And so also, I you also have uh, the 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 parameters of the character. So when because when you start doing character work and you're making these characters up, you're infusing them with the humanity. So once you and you understand certainly Alan Partridge, you know, bottom, you understand the depth of that guy. So you can also sort of temper it with that. Like, is this gratuitous? Is this something he wouldn't say? Is it within the realms of the humanity of the character? Because that's what's going to ground it in the humanity. Yeah. You can't, you can't be a monster. You can't, if you create uh, someone who's just obnoxious, then, you know, and, and he's sometimes ignorant and, and, uh, and, and prejudiced. He tr- but the one thing is, he tries to do the right thing. I th- I, 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 early on, we made him a little too sort of uh, unreconstructed and um, a little too predictably conservative that looked like picking, yeah. shoot, shooting fish in a, a barrel. A caricature. A caricature. Whereas now we do him as someone who's like, who realizes that that uh, he's got to get on message, as it were, and uh, right. someone is struggling to to to, to uh, do the thing he's supposed to. Not unlike a lot of men his age. Yeah, and but like, well, sometimes I mean, like, you know, it's um, I remember, you know, uh, my father, my yeah. late, late father, trying trying to be, you know, uh, it's like my mom saying, uh, you know, like the older generation uh, getting to grips with uh, um, uh, being enlightened about. Gay relationships, yeah, gay people, yeah, and uh, and getting to the the stage where my my mom can say, "And does he have a friend?" You know. um. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but that's what like before Trump came in, you know, when I would talk about the nature of because tolerance is what it is. It's what it is. In order for democracy to work or you to have a social fabric that's at all progressive, people have to engage tolerance. And that means like it starts off with with guys going like, oh, fuck the gays, fuck this shit. But as it becomes culturally infused and fought Mm -hmm. for, they're like, well, it's not for me, but it's it's fine. It's it's moving, 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 moving. And and, uh, and some people are, you know, people are open to that. And and I kind of like, if people it's it's all to do with the intention i remember my you know it's that it's what's your intention yeah. what's your intention is your intention to be mean spirited yeah. or is your intention to try and do the right thing and that's right. really the measure of what you know is it sincere or is it what's the motivation behind something? and also that, that just that conversation or weighing that stuff out it gives the characters depth which is what like when i watched uh, stan and ollie that you know, having seen you do uh, not a lot of stuff, I didn't grow up watching you do impressions mm-hmm. or, or or without mm-hmm. Alan Partridge, mm-hmm. but but just seeing that movie and having experienced, you know, Philomena, uh, the Trip, uh, the you know, Tropic Thunder, uh, Twenty Four Hour Party, people like seeing a lot of mm-hmm. films that you're uh-huh. in, was that 
you know, I grew up, my grandfather, I'm your age, so uh-huh. in New Jersey, the, the, the Laurel and Hardy stuff was on. So it's part of my childhood, mm-hmm. knowing that those those guys. But these are two guys that that not a lot of people know anymore. And mm-hmm. you're and but if you do know them, they're they're just these broad clown characters. And the fact that you were able, both of you, to give them such humanity and depth at that stage in their career and behind the scenes was kind of mind blowing to me. That like, because like knowing now how how adept you are at impressions, you still had to fill this guy out. Sure. You know, on on the level of having heart and 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 also exploring that relationship. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, taking this job on. First of all, you're right about any, anyone under forty. Like, who the hell are those guys? And then you show them a photograph. And they go, Oh, the fat guy and the thin guy that wear those bowler hats. Yeah. Right. Those right. Guys. They kind of love the image, but. I, it doesn't it was, matter, by the way, to see the film. No, you it doesn't. You don't need to know who they are. It, it's a really. I mean. I wanted to do this because a growing up they were very important to me but really beyond that what they did to me it's a a bunch of things but I was trying to sort of sum it up uh, I think it's a love letter to comedy I think that's true Uh, uh, I could see that uh, that a way of celebrating those because you know you I've 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 had spent a few years in comedy and and uh, as well as writing moving into sort of dramatic stuff and it's kind yeah. of a, there's a sweet spot where comedy to me as an end in itself is is a great thing that yeah. you can do but it's it's what it's 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 uh I'm gonna do Philomena I, I yeah. thought comedy is more useful as a a way to sugar the pill yeah. of difficult subject matter yeah you know if you make people laugh. They're not scared. You don't feel like they're, they're going into a lecture. You go, yeah. hey, you can laugh at this stuff. You can laugh at bad stuff. Yeah. And you can learn about it. And hey, learning can be fun. Right, right you know? sure. Uh, but um, but, but uh, with, with Stan and Ollie, it was, it was a way of saying, you know, we see, I was thinking about look, going back and doing the research on the, the movie that Jeff wrote. Jeff, who wrote Philomena with me, he wrote Stan and Ollie by himself. But Jeff, what, Jeff, what was it? Uh, what, what compelled him? Uh, he would just uh, I don't you, I, I don't know actually I do know that he thought that he knew that they'd done tours of Europe in their oh, 50s right, and right. wondered why why the hell are they touring 20 years after their heyday doing live gigs in, in, in Europe and then d- started to do some digging and it was yeah. like they were broke. Why were they broke? Because Hal Roach stiffed them uh, on on the deals, yeah. and uh, so he started to learn more about them. And then, then, and then from that came this idea of looking at the relationship between two men who known each other their whole lives yeah. and people have come and gone in their professional life wives have come and gone but at the end of the day all they have is each other and it's about learning It's a, it becomes a metaphor for living with each other yeah. of understanding the person who's in the same space as you yeah um, and, and, and also like the, in terms of the love letter to comedy, what was sort of amazing about it, no matter how begrudgingly they were doing these tours or what, how they were getting screwed, and even with their popularity dissipating, if, if at all, mm-hmm. being a nostalgia act, mm-hmm, is that mm-hmm. once they took the stage and did those bits mm-hmm. and they worked every fucking time, no matter how many people were there, mm-hmm. you know, as a comic, you see that those questions are answered. It's like you see guys who are older than you and I, mm-hmm. who have been doing the same act uh-huh. for 20 years, but mm-hmm. they get out there and they do it and they're in it. And and then, you know, whatever happens off stage is what happens off stage, but that professionalism. Well, exactly. And the thing is, we, we we all know about the other tears of the clown and the, and the kind of, you know, that, uh, w- you know, what, what the, the darkness behind the humor, but nobody yeah. looks at it and looks at the humanity of something, which I think is the old cliche about laughter being the best medicine. You know, it's, it's, it's never been more apparent to me how important it is now and I remember I did a lot of live stuff on stage yeah. a couple of tours where I do big big audiences yeah. before I got into to doing the movie stuff yeah. and 
it used to I used to look into the audience and this is something I think I'd helped me identify with with uh, Stan Laurel who who you know, wrote the comedy it was that um when you there's something incredibly powerful that we underestimate because we look at comedy you think oh, it makes you laugh it's, it's it must be lowbrow it's right. kind of, it's it's it makes this visceral reaction it's one of the few things apart from some something that stuff that touches you emotionally can make you cry but but that's a kind of a that can be a silent thing unless you're bawling your eyes out but, yeah. but when when you find something funny we all make this noise yeah it's unambiguous. Yeah. There's no gray area. Yeah. If it if you didn't make that noise, you didn't find it funny. If you didn't yeah. laugh, it's not funny. There's no it's it's unambiguous. Yes. Now, if you have a big crowd of people and they all laugh at the same time, there's a lack of bullshit in that. Yeah. They're laughing. That means they found it funny. That's indisputable. Right. Now, you've got a group of people in that 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 uh, crowd and I might be 2000 people in a venue, it might be millions of people watching something on the screen. They can be have the most diverse political views, the most diverse ethnicity, yeah. religion. Right. But if they all laugh in that one moment, they're all unified in that moment, however fleeting it is, when they all laugh at the same yeah. time. That's in, when you think about it that way, it's, in, that, in that regard, it's mind-blowing. Oh, sure. That you, that you can make all these people who might otherwise be at each other's throats yeah. be in complete union in a moment. And that's, yeah. what, that's what the greatest comedy does. And yeah. It was kind of like... Um, that the respect for that, yeah, uh, and and the fact that Stan, uh, that, that Laurel and Hardy, when you look at some of their movies, some of their best stuff, yeah. it is timeless and quite nuanced because it, some it works as in a childlike way. You know, when a brick falls on yeah. Oliver Hardy's head and he takes his bowler hat off and scratches, rubs his sore head, and then another one lands on his head, then and then another and then another one. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's kind of like it. It never goes in or out of fashion. That stuff. Yeah, yeah, and um. But you see the, the the expressions. There's a humanity to it, and a kind of love of humanity. That comedy they do is never vicious, mean, or 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 or, uh, or cynical. Yeah. Um, and I when I was looking back at the movies, it occurred to me. I thought, shit, this, this they were making this stuff while fascism was on the rise in Europe. Yeah. And the Great Depression was sweeping this country. Yeah. And yet they were doing this stuff that just made people laugh. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's um. That's pretty powerful, understanding the context. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so in making this movie, we just wanted to, uh, I think in some ways, tell a story about about something that's important. And, and people who have the ability to make people laugh and unify people like that, that's important and it's worth saluting. And also, like, be it a love story to comedy, it's also a, a love story about a relationship between two guys Sure. Who, you know, who despite, you know, whatever their emotional liabilities were or whatever they were unable to communicate had had this depth of feeling for each other that yeah. and that was sort of a fascinating. You know, thing. you see well, you do see it in, you know, when you see some of those political. I saw a documentary on John McCain mm -hmm. the other day and about uh, him and Lindsey Graham. Yeah, and yeah. Then, and, then, and it showed his friendship with Joe Biden, yeah. and, so, and I and and when you see people who don't agree with each other but have love and respect for each other, that's 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 where the that's where the the um, hope of humanity uh, is in people who see beyond you know their uh, ideology, their ideology, and their differences, and find a way through. Yeah, however imperfect that that. Uh, way through is there's never going to be a gold at the end of the rainbow right but there's a there's a kind of a way through by people accommodating uh those i mean you know that you can do that to an extent i mean if someone says i want to kill or or uh, wipe out a whole race of people 
that's pretty there's no kind of uh, there's no compromise on that that's yeah. so that's that's when you know the chips are down you have to um you have to just stand up against that stuff. that's right but, but, yeah. beyond, but beyond that um people you know there are people who who disagree fundamentally yeah. but are equally noble and also like maybe uh you know there's that sort of thing with with people where the, you, you may not know why you may not understand it but they're emotionally they're connected Sure. You know, whether it's noble or not, you know they 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 get along on a level that's not necessarily explainable. No, and do you know what? However much they, because the the normal the normal uh, narrative of Laurel and Hardy is yeah. that they're trying to get some scam, they're trying to struggle, they're kind of blue collar workers, they're kind of a little poor in their yeah. ways. Yeah, but they're trying to get get on, and uh, Stan Laurel screws it up for Oliver Hardy. But and however mad. Oliver Hardy gets at the end of it he still goes come on you know it's, it's like he can't bear his buddy but he never abandons his buddy <laughs> yeah there's a surrender to it yeah another thing the movie shows if you don't remember it or, or is that they despite the fact that they were Hal Roach players they may not have known each other before no, and that no. the outfit you know the bowler hats were something that was established by Chaplin or whatever uh -huh, mm -hmm. was that they are totally unique Mm -hmm. In in their presentation and in their act, there's nobody like them. No, they 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 no, and they just they were put together. They were like the kind of uh, they were like the monkeys of the right. pop uh, world. You know, like, well, the, the, it's the like we were talking about before your parents' records that there was a lot going on culturally yeah. that was popular in comedy, and they mm -hmm. were and Hal Roach mm -hmm. wanted to the capitalize monkeys on monkeys had that. some great songs. Couple, yeah, yeah. You know? um, so uh, you know, we we. Well, they discovered these characters. They created these characters. Um, interestingly, uh, Chaplin and Stan Laurel came over from England on the boat together. And and uh, Stan Laurel was Charlie Chaplin's understudy. In fact, you can see photographs of uh, Stan Laurel wearing the Charlie Chaplin clothes. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. With the mustache and the bolt and the, and the stick, the, the walking stick. At United Artists or like or uh, before? Be, be, before yeah. that, when they were yeah. doing the stuff live. Oh, okay. Before okay. he got... So, but... but uh, but Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, you know, did that stuff together. Stan Laurel did all the work behind the scenes. Um, so when you, like, I talked to Dick Van Dyke, uh, you know. Dick Van Dyke, okay. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Th this uh, this is, okay, you can tell me. Your well, whole, no, whole, no, he just, like, okay. he tells a story about when he got to Hollywood and how much he loved Stan Laurel, and then he mm -hmm. just looked him up in the phone that's book. That's right. And he called him. I know. And he had I, a relationship with I him. I know, that's right. But that, what I was going to go on and say is that the research that I did on Stan Laurel was because he was in the phone book. Uh, Dick Van Dyke, you know, famously uh, yeah. called him up, but uh, a bunch of other people just phoned up Stan Laurel and recorded the conversations down the phone. Really? Yeah, on tape recorders, and so there was a bunch of recordings of Stan Laurel that down you the phone to. that I listened to of Stan Laurel just talking about Laurel Hardy. He would talk to anyone who rang up. He would give them the time. I think he said to Dick Van Dyke, uh, I think he said, "Does your mother know you're calling?" Yeah, it's a trunk call, and yeah. you know it's going to be cost a lot of money. Isn't right. It? Um, yeah, and so and that so, was how. So, so this was in the late fifties, early sixties. Stan died in sixty-five. Yeah, and um, but the, those 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 phone calls, a real uh, eye opener uh, to not only how, the rhythms of his speech, but how he used to think. Yeah, he was like uh, cantankerous about certain things. Like ah, he was a you know jackass, and you hear him being kind of quite rude about some people. <laughs> yeah, which is nice to hear somehow, right. because he, he's the hapless kind of idiot. But right. he's this, this the powerhouse of generating stuff. And he said when. What was interesting, he said, when talkies came in, uh -huh. before that, Laurel Hardy made the transition very well. He said, when talkies came in, he said, people were talking nine to the dozen. They were just wouldn't shut up on movies because they could talk suddenly. <laughs> he said, 
But we, me and Ollie, we just kept it to a minimum. We stuck to what we knew worked. So he, they kept the physical stuff. They put a few words in here and there. They didn't go crazy just because yeah. they could speak, right. which a lot of movies at that time did. People yeah. went, yeah, yada, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. all the way through. Yeah. They didn't do that. They right. said, they, they, so and that was interesting. That's a smart way to adapt. Yeah. Right? And, and Don't also, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. So for you, like since you have this uh, you know, nat- natural ability to sort of you know, become, you know, to, to take on an impression, so these phone calls and, 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 and the research you did were able to inform this impression into a full character yeah look when you when you when you people say what's it like when you play a like a real character if, you, if a blank page is more difficult at least you've got someone who lived a life and they've done a bunch of they've done the research for you stan laurel has left behind a footprint in the movies he did in some of these conversations in a few books his letters there's stuff there yeah and also right? the thing was is that like you know biopics can go either way depending on how familiar people are with with who it's about like if that person's still alive or it's relatively mm-hmm. contemporary you're up against this sort of like well he doesn't quite look like him but uh-huh. he kind of mm-hmm. got him mm-hmm. but these guys are far enough in the past and the makeup and and the attention to detail was so what it was but i feel as a biopic the depth of it is much different than anything i've ever seen before in- because it doesn't really it's got to work you have to it has to work yeah if you don't know who they are, you just need to so you need to look at it and say this is about a relationship between two guys who are funny and show them being funny. And if you show them being funny on stage, and then you see, yeah. okay, this is what goes behind people who do that funny stuff, and and you, you just see the the like any kind of relationship, you see the the tensions, you see the the arguments, the 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 the, the kind of the baggage that people carry sure. around in relationships and let, they let it fester and then somebody bursts up uh, yeah. and, the, and then then and then you either resolve it or you don't yeah and um but the the, the, the sort of the, the sort of on stage persona personas you know and the backstage off stage realities was done so well so how how did you and and John work it out we well first of all you talked about me doing impersonations uh, that the way I did it, John was a little different for me, but the um, but the way I did it was I I thought well I know how he talks he sort of speaks like this he has a kind of strange way of talking it's like mid Atlantic it's 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 kind of a little bit British but it's also slightly American you can't quite place it you know? yeah and uh, <laughs> I, 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 so and uh, and he has he sort of throws his arms up and has these strange expressions where he can't quite show what you, know, you see him do about four or five expressions in the pace, space of thirty seconds. Each one with a completely different thought process, yeah. And you see it in his face. So, and I, so I, you, you have. It's almost like because you have this phys- stuff on screen, and then there's some conversations. It's like, well, I know the the outside uh, sort of um, superficialities of his of his character, uh-huh. the physicality, and you can use that as a way of going back into the character a little. Yeah. You go, okay, well, I've got a, I've got a handle on him, and now I can develop it by doing some research. It's like. Working backwards, yeah. Like you, you go, right. well, I've got the answer. I just got yeah. to figure out what the question is. Okay, yeah. And um, that that was kind of how I, I went about bringing Stan to life. Now we had uh, obviously we spent four weeks in rehearsal. John C. Riley playing Oliver Hardy and I sat in a rehearsal room for four weeks and we learned these dance routines. We learned some of the physical stuff. We had so a clown. Funny. We had this oh, yeah. clown advisor, and he loves called, clowns. Uh, John, he, he loves was a clown. Clowns. He was a clown yeah. for a while yeah. early on. And uh, we had this guy called Toby Sedgwick who taught us how to walk, taught us how to move. We had to learn dance routines. We had to learn dance routines that they did yeah. and then learn their mistakes and put the mistakes in as well. Oh, right. It's like a band. Uh, we had to learn each move meticulously and then make it messy. Yeah. Like a, like a good band that can play tight. You had to make it like they would do it. 
Yeah. yeah. And then play it, be loose. Yeah. Make it, uh, give it that right. jazz element. Yeah. That where things are not quite, you know, uh -huh. detune your guitar slightly. Uh -huh. yeah, that kind right. Of, yeah. That kind of thing. Was and it fun? It was, it was great fun. It was hard work, but it was fun. And that was the, the and, but in doing it together, John and I got to know each other. We, we became friends the same way that, you know, we were saying, hey, this is just like Stan and Ollie were put together. We've been put together. Let's find out who we are. Yeah. Let's learn to trust each other. And, and we got on great. It became the, 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 it was all designed to make the movie work. But, uh -huh. but the byproducts of that was that we became, of course, inevitably became very good friends uh -huh. because we were living in each other's pockets and having to take care of each other on screen yeah. and guide each other a little too you know yeah, like, like yeah. look out for me and like hey you know when you did that thing it was better the first time you did it oh right okay what about me you know you constantly trusted there, each trusted, other saying hey give me some feedback what, what do you think of that that was pretty good right mm -hmm. what do you think we can do you know it's it's great it, it must have great. been a very like because i was a, a, a really and, and i'm not i'm not cynical but i'm judgmental mm -hmm. uh you know i i was like completely blown away by both of the performances and and the movie itself i thought it was great and i didn't know what to expect uh -huh. when i saw the trailer i was like holy shit mm -hmm. this is mm -hmm. like this is going to be insane mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh and it just mm -hmm. like it, it doesn't matter if you know who they are uh you know yeah. it's it, you know it's it's really a, an interesting portal into not only a past time but the the sort of um kind of eternal dynamic of of you know relationship and guys it's, who i just feel it's i i feel like it's there's so it there's especially right now where any conversation because of the world we're living in most conversations where differences of opinions are had tend to spiral and escalate into this kind of you know biblical meltdown yeah uh, time and again yeah and uh it's it's just about two people figuring out a way through the fucking mess yeah yeah it's great uh and was it rewarding for you i mean in terms of you know what you've done in your career as an it was actor? yeah i mean I, I you know i i did this when i, I wrote this film philomena a few years yeah. ago that you mentioned and that was to me that was a kind of a a little epiphany for me because i was like hey you know uh comedy is isn't just an interesting thing in itself it's 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 more interesting as a component and and uh, as a as a as a, a tool yeah. or a weapon sure. to use yeah to try and tell stories to and, keep people's heart open people yeah and and uh it's it's and, and storytelling you know that's what i sort of fell in love with and i, I was thinking like so especially with I, I keep thinking about the political and the global landscape and everything of people who are at each other's throats and the attritious nature of any kind of dis discussion yeah um and when you put comedy into something it just softens things people just uh, are more open to something it's like any kind of storytelling if you have an intellectual discourse you and i could have an argument about yeah. some political argument where sure. i present all my the the, the merits of my evidence of blah blah, blah and yeah. you could do the same whenever really gonna i mean you might uh, you might accommodate a little bit of it but really if you really want to um make people think about yeah that it's the idea of uh, consider it was Oliver Cromwell said you know I beg you in the depth of Christ yeah. consider it possible you may be wrong you know just the notion of self doubt yeah that, that, that that's a healthy thing right sure I think you might not be right about something I'm very healthy then uh, <laughs> <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> yeah, it's just a good thing and and I think but the only thing that really makes people think about that stuff is if you tell a story yeah. and this, but the Bible is full of stories yeah and that's that you know it's not about uh, you tell a story. If the story touches someone, yeah, it'll make them think about something. Oh, absolutely! Way more powerfully than a whole spreadsheet of statistics. And you've and you've done also like some of the other movies. You, you you know you've done you've been part of like 
because really you know good satire is not you know, it, there's not a lot of it and i think that you know the british are a little better at it generally but also i think tropic thunder is mm-hmm. one of the greatest <laughs> satirical movies yeah i mean it's like it's a really deep movie yeah it's it, well it is it's about the funny thing is you're right. I think you're right. It is about, it's about something. Yeah. It's a, the point is, it's not just funny. It's about something. Yeah. About something that's about human nature. Right. It says something like and, human And nature. also show business. And, and vanity yeah. and yeah. show business and yeah. shallowness and yeah. narcissism. But it's a commentary on something. Um, unfortunately, I think because it's comedy, that it's still, it's sort of, uh, things like that get, because they don't wear their importance on their sleeve. Right. Com- comedy by its very nature doesn't wear its importance on its right. sleeve. It, because it makes you laugh. So yeah. you think, well, it can't be that important. And of yeah. course, it can be. I, yeah, I think it's uh, underrated in terms of the intelligence of the whole thing. How did you get involved with that? With the ben, well, ben. I knew Stiller oh, from, yeah. uh, I can't remember what, but I, I knew him just because he knew my stuff and I knew his stuff. And I think he came to London and met me and said, hey, I really dig your stuff. And yeah. I said, well, I dig your stuff. And he said, well, will you do? And then I, I, and I did those Night at the Museum movies with yeah. him. I think that may have been after. I, can't I remember. think it's after. Maybe yeah. it's after. But anyway, the... the but he said, come and play, uh, will you play the director, play yeah. the British director. Interestingly, yeah. he, he said, uh, the funny thing is, I wore, a, for some reason, I don't know why, but I was playing the British director, and I think he wanted me to seem dislikable, but I wore a Confederate flag. Yeah. I, I wore a Confederate flag on, on my, sh- it wasn't my choice, Yeah, they put a Confederate flag right. on my shirt. Yeah. And, because uh, I was playing the British director, I don't yeah. know the associate, the, the, why that choice yeah. was made. But anyway, when they tested the movie, Ben said, um, the only thing people didn't like about the movie was the Confederate flag, and they they they, they <laughs> digitally removed it from every frame. That's crazy of me. Yeah, yeah. So that uh, I just had a plain blue T-shirt on. Uh, oh, I didn't. Even, I wouldn't have noticed that. Yeah, but I think in the trailer there may be there may be somewhere online there's a trailer where I'm still wearing it, like a. And and yeah, <laughs> I, and do you you so do you 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 do like doing that kind of stuff where you're really cut like even the political yeah. comedy with with uh, yeah anything which is you know I like I've done a lot of comedy that which is uh, uh, edgy and yeah. but I like doing uh, stuff which is uh, I mean Laurel and Hardy the so Stan and Ollie as it's called is quite a sort of um, a gentle. Sure. And so I, was the trip too. That I mean, that was kind of a, a yeah. relationship with two. It, it is guys. actually, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, similar. It is similar in a lot of ways, actually. Yeah, yeah. The, the trip about two middle-aged guys trying to figure out life. Yeah, um, I like that. But movie. I think I don't know what it is. I think when you're younger, it's like you got like more a, to prove. I, you want to be a, a, the comedy I did was sort of more acerbic and yeah. fun and, and cynical. But it's like I know it's like wearing it's like kind of giving the finger to the establishment, and then when you. If you're over forty and you're giving people the finger, it's kind of it's, kind of not, it's not a good look. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I love the movie. It was great talking to you. I'm glad you took the time to do it. Uh, you know, thanks for hanging out. Hey, Mark, I like it a lot. I like your garage. I don't know why you've got a, a hammer on the a table. Half a hammer. A half a hammer. Is that in case? Is that for me to attack you or you to attack me? I don't know. Yeah, whatever you, you feel like doing with it. They generally, neither has happened. People just ask what the fuck has happened. I found <laughs> it somewhere, and it was on the, the table in the old garage. So now it's over here. Mm. So how long are you in town for? Uh, three days, and I'm going to. I'm flying to Monaco to do. It. Well, actually, the Michael Winterbottom. I'm doing another movie with him. I'm doing a movie about a rich billionaire bastard are you him i'm him yeah how's the script good funny? it's funny uh it's uh I, yeah he's like a, a a super rich guy who has super yachts and uh big parties and uh and employ and employs people in sweatshops in uh in in um 
uh, Sri Lanka and, to and make his he, clothes super super cheap so he can sell them on the high street. And does yeah. he have an existential moral crisis uh, at the end of Act Two? No, he's a bastard all the way through, and then he dies. <laughs> So that's refreshing. <laughs> Unpredictable. <laughs> thanks, man. We'll have a good trip. Okay, dude. Thanks. Go see that movie, folks. That was Steve Coogan, uh, who did an amazing job. And, and it, the movie's just great. Stan and Ollie playing now in uh, New York and California. It opens everywhere on Friday, January 18th. Okay. Okay. We don't need no stinking wall. Dig it. I'm going to play some guitar. Some slightly border-tinged guitar, I think. It's got a little echo to it. It's got a twang, a little Tex-Mexy. Maybe not. Maybe it's just me doing what I do at the end of the show. <laughs>